0: Hey folks, Libba here. Today's episode is a two-in-one. Dr. Akela Reason joins us to discuss two related topics, defining public history and the role of museums in a society. Also, I wanted to warn you that there is a phone notification sound that will occasionally beep during the interview. We'll be sure to catch that next time. Anyway, this is a fascinating conversation, so let's get right into it.
1: And welcome back to Then Again, the podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Today we have Dr. Reason here with us today. Could you please introduce yourself?
2: Hi, I'm Akella Reason and I teach in the history department at the University of
0: Georgia.
1: And thank you so much for being with us today. This is a special podcast for me because Dr. Reason was one of my professors while I was at UGA who taught me about public history and museum studies, which she is here to talk to us about today. Uh, but firstly, can you tell us just what is public history? Because the public knows that such a thing exists, but sometimes it's hard to put exactly mm-hmm. what what it is into words. So can you do that for us? Yeah,
2: and it, it is. it's also somewhat difficult to define because it's quite big. It can be many different activities, but basically most students of history encounter History in classrooms, public historians try to reach the public in other places outside of classrooms. So it could be, you know, a documentary film, it could be a museum exhibition, it could be, you know, through providing archival work to genealogists or, um, you know, giving people access to collections or working in public programs, uh, you know, like heritage days or festivals that have a kind of historical dimension to them. So it is um, people. I think, leave their K-12 education thinking that they don't like history, but we know that that's really not true, (laughs) Um, that Americans really enjoy history, but they very often don't consider sometimes the activities that they enjoy that are historical to be history because they think of it as being this academic thing. But, you know, people keep their own family histories, they keep photo albums, they document family members through oral history interviews and things like that, and that is Is all part of history and very often is part of public
1: history. I think one of when I was looking up, you know, how to try to explain like what public history is, is getting history in front of the public. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can do that in so many ways. So what methods do public historians use to get history in front of the public?
2: Well, some public historians have positions like yours, where they are working with people as their job and then there are other historians for whom maybe the public component is not always present, but is often a part of their work. So for me, in like an academic environment, I try to craft sometimes projects that relate to communities that allow students to contribute to, say, websites or do projects. I've had students do podcasts and, and projects that have a kind of public dimension to them. Mm-hmm. So there can be a, you know, really a lot of uh, ways in which historians work to get that
1: information out. So would you say that this podcast itself fits into the definition of public history?
2: Absolutely. And history podcasts are among the most popular uh, of the podcast genre. And they they can take all different forms. You know, a lot of times they're historical mysteries that people like to follow and try to, you know, figure out what people did in the past. But yeah, it's definitely one of the ways in which people like to consume history.
1: Now, can you tell us a little bit about the University of Georgia's Summer Public History Program and how that is training the next generation of public historians?
2: Absolutely. So in 2016, we started a program in the History Department that takes students, both graduates and undergraduates, but primarily undergraduates actually, to Washington, D.C. for the summer. And they participate in a May term program, which I lead, where I take students to different sites in the Washington, D.C. metro area. And a little bit beyond, we've gone to Gettysburg and to um, Mount Vernon for more extended trips. But what we try to do at each site is look at collections, look at exhibitions and the presentation of history at these very, very, sites but <laughs> (laughs) but we also try to meet with professionals in the field and that's really the most important part of that portion of the program where we get to talk to people and find out how they ended up where they are. And the the best part of this is that most students are so self-directed and so clear about their goals that they don't understand that actually many people make detours all throughout and so we we get to find the interesting stories about how people ended up in their really exciting jobs. Um, And it's never a direct route. Um, and then for the second part of the summer, the students stay in Washington and they intern at a public history site. So we've had students at various Smithsonian museums. We've had students work with the National Park Service, the Library of Congress, the U.S. Capitol. We had students work at the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. So we've, we've placed students at a, a lot of different Places, and they have over the years started to enter the profession through gaining the summertime experience and then continuing their passion for it um, as they proceed through the program and beyond.
1: So what would you say is some of your favorite public history sites that you've ever visited or experiences with public history that you've had?
2: Um, There's some really great sites. Two of my favorites, one is on one that we visit in the Washington program, and that is the Lincoln, President Lincoln's Cottage, which is a site that it's in Washington, but when Lincoln was president, it was kind of outside of the downtown core. And so it was seen as like a retreat for him. And he would go out to the Lincoln Cottage during the summertime, and it's really where he conceived of the Emancipation Proclamation. And what's interesting about the site is that they don't have Lincoln artifacts. They have really no furniture. They have none of the traditional historic house material. And they tell their story in very different ways. They tell it using iPads and sound clips and video and just through storytelling alone. So you're in the spaces that you know that Lincoln was in, but you don't have any of that, you know, this desk is important because it was made by this maker and he's sat here. Um, so it's, it's very compelling and it relies a lot on the guides doing a great job. another site that I love is the New York City Tenement Museum which tells the history of immigration in the U.S. and really puts you in those spaces that early immigrants came to in in mostly in the early 20th century is the Mm -hmm. focus of their stories so it's it's really a great site and it tells a lot of different immigrant stories from different
1: perspectives. So what do you think makes public history effective or a a public history site effective in telling that story and getting engaged with the public?
2: I think it varies through the medium. So, Mm -hmm. because it can be so many different things, but I think what makes it most compelling is the immediacy of it. You are either interacting with an object or a site or a space or a person who is telling their story and. It's it's not an abstraction. It's not something that happened in a distant place in time. Um, there's often a kind of residue of history around you mm-hmm. that makes it much more exciting. You know, at sites, I love how people really feel a presence in being in a space where events happened or significant people lived. So it, it really is, it's a very different environment from just a classroom.
1: <laughs> yes, Now, as someone who has worked in public history and academically in history, can you tell us a little bit about what the differences between the two are, how different Mm -hmm. it is to to teach and to instruct in those different ways? It
2: is quite different, although I think increasingly I'm trying to merge the two so that we're less in the classroom and we're trying to explore collections on campus uh, and sites on campus. I mean, there's a lot of history in Athens. I think in general, in the classroom, There's there's a different structure and there's the people are there for a different reason, Mm -hmm. Um, so they haven't you know maybe they've chosen that course for a particular reason, but it's not a recreational activity, which most public Mm -hmm. history activities are in some way they're they're what someone has chosen to do with their leisure time. So I have a more sustained relationship I think with the students who are more kind of goal directed towards, you know, finishing that course and getting their degree, but it also means that it's a the passion of seeing someone at a, a site that they've chosen to visit and the experience that they have there is is also quite compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think you can get that in a classroom too but it takes a lot a lot of work to have to have it seem as exciting i think
1: <laughs> what do you see the future of public history being or what would you like to see in the future in the field of public history i think
2: that what i would like to see is you know kind of a better recognition that history is many things and that i think uh, in general particularly in the kind of polarized society we live in right now that that there's a a really sort of easy view of history as it just being facts. And that that has never been the case. The facts are always interpreted and they're always dependent upon whose perspective is telling the story. You know, the, the battle of Little Bighorn is very different from the Indian perspective than it is from the white perspective. And those are two different stories equally valid, but nonetheless the perspective shifts how you might tell that story. And I think I would love to see public historians help to communicate that history is complicated, that it is not all good, all bad, that there, are, there's lots of nuance to the story, and there always is, that there's never anything that's totally clear-cut. The thing that I love about museums, and always have since I was a child, is that museums tell stories with objects. Mm-hmm. So you have a different manner of presenting the past and you have these artifactual witnesses that help to tell the story. And I always, you know, loved old things. And so seeing material culture, the the things that people used is, is always really exciting for me. But as a museum professional, the best part is that you have to figure out how to make the objects talk and tell something that's important for other people who might come to see it.
1: That's true for for art museums when you're having a painting that's true Mm -hmm. for natural history museums when you have bones of of possibly extinct animals and for history museums when we have artifacts from the past so how does certain museums I mean they all have different ways of doing this but interpret those objects try to get those objects to talk
2: yeah well that is you know the really special work that museum professionals do they spend time uh Learning their collections and then learning the methodologies that are used to kind of tease meaning out of objects, which is not something for everyone. It's certainly not something that everybody can do. It is really a talent to try to get to those stories and to be able to then, particularly in an exhibition context, to make objects relate to one another Mm-hmm. Visually, physically and intellectually is really what's most exciting about using objects. But you have to learn how to how to like excavate their histories and how to how to get them to tell you their secrets. <laughs>
1: What can the purpose of a museum within a community be? Because there's there's so many different things. It's a repository for learning, but also it can be a, a community center almost. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us about the roles of communities in, in different communities?
2: Yeah. And actually, I think that this is a really exciting time for museums. I mean, obviously, COVID has has been, been an issue for museums in that many museums face closures and limiting of programs, but it also forced them to think kind of creatively about how to reach the public. So I think that um, museums, particularly coming out of the past couple of years, have realized that their, their boundaries can't be so narrow, that they can't be confined to a building. Mm-hmm. And so some museums are starting to take their objects into their communities. They're also trying to think about non-object assets that they might have in being able to tell the stories of their communities in a more public way, sometimes simply by like doing events outside because we can't always be inside during the the pandemic finding ways to incorporate community events like some museums have actually begun to do things like there are a couple of uh, historic farm museums that have begun to reuse the properties and and uh, cultivate vegetables uh, and use those to return to the community so it's it's not necessarily a traditional museum function to do something like that but it also helps to make the site kind of live in the way that it historically has, and also reconnect to communities that they might serve. Um, So I think it's a really exciting time and I don't think that anything is really off the table. Uh, Right now, I think a lot of museums are thinking pretty creatively about how to become more relevant to the people that they serve and how to serve more people to, you know, there's a kind of traditional community who have been museum attendees, people with income and people who have time. So they tend to be older and more sort of retirees. But I think that museums have always been interested in serving younger audiences and also in trying to get, you know, different communities who traditionally have not felt very welcome in museums to to begin to to feel welcomed uh, in these spaces and to try to you know target their programming so that it is more inclusive
1: I know here at the Northeast Georgia History Center we were very perfectly uh, poised because we had a digital studio already Mm -hmm. in our museum so we were able to take a lot of our programs and make them digital very easily the pandemic hit so we were able to continue to like basically you know zoom into classrooms whether they be physical Uh classrooms or virtual classrooms with our historic presentations and historical characters and and live streams and just like you were saying we have experience reaching people with outside of our community people in different countries, even there's a couple regulars that we have from one from Wales and one from Germany, which is so interesting that Mm -hmm. like we we have experienced just like what you're talking about here at the History Center of really expanding who we reach from outside of our community, people who could, you know, physically drive here to Mm -hmm. people that basically have internet.
2: (laughs) And it's been an interesting opportunity for teaching too, because Mm -hmm. I like to do a lot of object work and I like to do field trips and, a lot of those have been curtailed because collections have been closed and, and field trips were not possible. But I have had this experience of like, but museums that we can't visit normally have been accessible because we can zoom them into the classroom.
1: And there was like a kind of trend right there at the beginning of the pandemic is everyone had a virtual tour of their collections, mm-hmm. like their normal galleries, uh, which I thought was really interesting because I could go and go online and, and go look at museums all over the world that wouldn't have had access to before. Yeah. (laughs) As COVID has hit and, you know, museums have come up with different ways of trying to interpret and to, you know, become accessible to their communities, why do you think museums are important Uh, in the past, in the present, in the future? Why do you Mm -hmm. think they'll be important?
2: (laughs) Well, museums have a very long history. They go back to antiquity. And there are always reasons why people keep their patrimony together. And I mean, sort of globally, communities often have objects that they feel are really important. So museums are crucial in the preservation of those objects at a very basic level of just making sure they continue. But I think in the past, like over the course of the 20th century and then into the 21st, I think towards the end of the 20th century, museums began to realize more concretely that they needed to move beyond pres- reservation and to really engage with audiences. And museum educators like yourself have become much more important because you're the the kind of gateway to the collection and the people. You're kind of the intermediary between the two. And I think that that has broadened accessibility. You know, museums in the early 20th century were sort of rarefied environments that were largely welcoming to a very, you know, elite clientele. Um, the hope, I think that most museums have today is that that's really not the case, that they are open to everyone and they want everyone to feel as if they have a home in these.
1: Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Museum Studies Program at the University of Georgia, which you have have headed and really created? So can you tell us why you thought it was important to have that? Museum Studies program, and then how it came to be and, and what it does today.
2: I'm really excited about the Museum Studies program because it's actually grown quite a lot in a pretty short amount of time. And we're getting students who major in all kinds of things. We have students who major in the sciences, students who major in or getting a business degree, um, students in journalism. It's a certificate that is 17 credits, so it's pretty easy for students to add it into their very busy schedules. It is both for graduates and for undergraduate students. And uh, one of the reasons why this program created was because UGA has a lot of collections, and we we have a lot of students who are interning in those collections on a regular basis and have been for decades, but they didn't have a kind of academic framework behind it that gave them some of the tools that they needed to kind of credential themselves in the field. So we have an art museum, we have a uh, museum of natural history, we have a historic costume and textile collection, and we have our special collections library, which has a lot of artifacts in it and not just paper, but, you know, physical three-dimensional things. So students in our museum studies classes work with these collections to different degrees and they can specialize in, you know, really any emphasis that interests them. You know, if they were interested in natural history, we could set them up with the Natural History Museum. If they're interested in art, we can set them up with the art museum. But we also work with external partners. There have been other institutions both in Georgia and out where our students have interned. And the pandemic has also kind of changed that as well. We have students who are doing virtual internships, which I was initially a little bit skeptical of, but have turned out if you have a well-structured program, it actually can be really rewarding to have students working with institutions, even from a distance. So it's been really great. And it's also an interdisciplinary program so it's housed in the history department but it was it was founded by the historic preservation department the art museum and the history program together and we have classes in anthropology we have classes in art history we have historic preservation courses so students get a kind of broad look at the possibilities in the museum studies field
1: so what is your your hope for training this next generation of museum professionals
2: Well, I'm hoping and I'm starting to see signs of this. We've only been in full operation since spring of 2019. So my hope is that we have students who are active professionals in the field like you uh, (laughs) and that helps us you know, perpetuate the kind of rich opportunities that we can offer students. Um, because I've certainly had students who've entered the field who have then been our intern hosts and or have come back to give guest lectures or like to mentor students in the program. And that's really fantastic when we have that because then it's not an abstraction. I can tangibly show them like, yeah, <laughs> you can get a job in this field. And, you know, then we have people who can tell them behind the scenes, you know, what they're looking for, what it's like to, to work in this field, what the opportunities are. And, it, and it's very much more um, concrete and tangible, maybe, than the average major degree. Like, it, it really is, is a pre-professional program.
1: Because there's so many different roles within a museum. And mm-hmm. sometimes I don't think people outside museum field... Kind of understand just how many different aspects of museum work there are. Um. Yeah,
2: and that's what's really exciting too. And it, that's also why an interdisciplinary program is great because, like, maybe people don't realize this, but a lot of people who are in the fine arts are the people who build the exhibitions. Mm-hmm. Like, that's often the background that they come from, or from carpentry or set building in theater. Um, and those skills translate really well to preparators who, who install exhibitions. So sometimes, you know having people, you know, it's great. I've had theater majors who work primarily in sets who have come into museum studies. And that's just like another thing that they're able to do by having that kind of background. So it's not, I think curators get all the, the attention. There are so many different roles. And then of course, there's the fundraisers and there's the museum educators, there's the registrars who track and document all the materials that come in and out of the museum. So there's a lot of different roles that can play that that actually also relate really well to a lot of different personality types. Like if you're really meticulous, you're a registrar is what you want to be. <laughs> um, if you're really, you know, outgoing and want to work with the public, then museum education. If you're, you know, a researcher, there are roles for you there too. So it's really like a, a great little microcosm of, of society. You, you can be anything in a museum.
1: <laughs> It's so interesting because just the people who work here at the Northeast Georgia History Center we have such an interesting collection of special talents is mm-hmm. basically like the best way to to say it is people who have a very unique special set of talents have found very perfect homes and perfect jobs for themselves within this museum mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily think you know the traditional museum route <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit about how do people besides a museum studies certificate kind of come to to work in a museum or find their place in a museum?
2: Well, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, I think internships are one way that that people discover museums, although I think it has to be somewhat on their radar um, in order for them to land in an internship. But, you know, people who study deeply in a particular content area oftentimes think about a a museum track at some point, depending upon their research interests. I actually have a background in art history. And so I to museums for some time, and that was born of my attendance at museums as a kid. And also just because I I like the type of work where you're there's a, a physical component to it, where you're thinking about not just the, the historical moment of the thing, but also you have to think about it physically, about how big is it and where is it going to go and how, how is it going to relate to other things that are around it and how are you going to draw people's attention to it in the room and, and those sorts of things. So I liked the working with objects a lot.
1: There's a lot of visual, like almost mm-hmm. decorative work yeah. that goes into pre- preparing those exhibitions.
2: Yeah, nothing's an accident. You know, the wall color is is often hotly debated. <laughs> <laughs> Or like what font to use or how many, you know, images can you put on the wall? Those sorts of things are all things that are very carefully considered. And they're considered for aesthetic reasons, but also in terms of the people who will interact in those spaces. You have to have rooms so that people can navigate and turn around and, you know, that there's a logical progression through the exhibition so that there's an entrance and an exit. And you have to think about how people would move in space, which is also something that I like there's a little bit of stagecraft, I think.
1: Yes, it's, it's interesting because you were t- talking about how, like, you know, people from a theater background, mm-hmm. how that works well when, like, just preparing the exhibitions. But I've also found, as myself, who also had a theater minor, it works very well for trying to figure out how to present to the public mm-hmm. in an engaging and creative manner. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Of how am I going to, you know, hold their attention and make this a fun and interactive experience mm-hmm. for them?
2: Yeah, there's so many backgrounds that could be helpful. Um, you know, people who also have degrees in education also think of these things, you know, science Sometimes is helpful. Um, like this is a pretty specialized field, but there are people who conserve the objects and they usually need to have a background in science and the fine arts in order to do that, to, to know how, how things deteriorate and how to arrest problems and restore them without
1: harming them. I'm sure you have gone to many, many, many museums, Mm -hmm. but can you tell us, you don't have to pick one that's your favorite, but just some of the ones that you have walked away from and felt like that was a very impactful museum. That was a good museum. I I feel like I learned something and it's going to stick with me for a while. If you've ever walked out of a a museum or an exhibition where you came away without feeling
2: I think the um, Smithsonian's um, Museum of African American History and Culture, the history galleries are amazing as an experience. And part of that has to do with the design of the space, which is intended. The way they, they have people move through there is it's incredibly dense and crowded in the areas in which they're talking about slavery and the slave trade. And it It's kind of, it makes you a little nervous and they're showing you depictions of slave ships that are packed to the gills and you cramped in the space, but then it gradually kind of opens up as it tells the story. And once you move through the civil rights movement, it's much more open. They very effectively use space and also the objects that they have are really well chosen to tell those stories and they're quite moving and is not uncommon to go through those galleries and see people crying or talking to one another, strangers talking to one another. And that's not an experience you have at every museum.
1: Most of the time in museums, it's it's everyone's very quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, even if you did come with a group, you almost don't feel like you should talk to your group mm-hmm. um, because yeah. everyone's just very, very quiet. Everyone's looking around and, you know, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure why necessarily, now that I'm saying that, I'm like, I'm not sure why everyone's so quiet. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that that's, it's, it's
2: a holdover from kind of what museums were maybe a few decades ago. And I think people still feel that need, but it's, I think museums have to some degree transcended that
1: we know in our galleries and exhibits and other um, museums that I've gone to now usually there's music playing or there's Mm -hmm. videos that are playing that kind of already have it's no longer just visual there's also that the audio visual um, Mm -hmm. that's come into play as technology has taken off and and that's become possible which I think also there's already like noise going on in the gallery so people don't feel as like I need to be quiet.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, libraries, I think, have gone through a similar transformation. You know, there's that kind of stereotype of the shushing librarian, but I don't know any librarian who would do that these <laughs> days. I mean, libraries are, are places of community now, and I think museums are too.
1: Which kind of brings us full circle when we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, you know, how museums are here to serve their community and they play a lot of different roles within their community, telling their community stories. So is there is there any final thoughts that you have uh, on the importance of museums that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: I, I would just encourage people to visit museums, that they are open to everyone. Yeah, and there are often ways to access those museums, even if you are generally not able to afford them. So for example, I know our public library here in Oconee County has passes to many of these museums that you can check out that, that allow you to get discounted admissions or very low uh, rate admissions to many museums. So do what you can to take advantage and also take advantage of all the programming that's now available on from these great museum sites that have invested in putting together programming to reach people in more places.
1: I know at our History Center, we try to keep our admission affordable, and on the second Sunday of every month, we have a free family day where we Mm -hmm. have programs that are free to the public, and I honestly think that uh, numbers-wise, those are our most well-attended events, and it's just great to see the community come out. So we hope to see everyone at the Northeast Georgia History Center, or if you are not local, go to your own local history museum. They will be so happy that you decided to stop by and come see them. And again, just enjoy history and, and enjoy your own museum, whether that be you know, your, your local art museum, your local natural history museum, another house museum. There's so many different types of museums. They are all important. And thank you so much for, for talking about that with us, Dr. Reason. <laughs> thank
0: you, Marie. Then again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THEN AGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of THEN AGAIN. Thanks, y'all.